This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today in the podcast, our guest is presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke. Now, Democrats were waiting for Beto to run president. He narrowly lost to Senator Ted Cruz in Texas, a very red state. They said, well, he could probably do really well as president. And he blew up out of the gates. But then his campaign has faded. We talked to him about what's coming up next because he does have some popularity in California. He actually raised more money in California for his Senate campaign in Texas than Dianne Feinstein raised in California for her Senate race in California. Perhaps most important, you have to stick around towards the end of the podcast when O'Rourke and I talk about a deep passion that we both share. We both have the same favorite band, the only band that matters, The Clash. We talk about The Clash and why their song Clampdown is his campaign's theme song. Beto O'Rourke and The Clash, next on It's All Political. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome to It's All Political. Welcome to the city of St. Francis, as our Speaker Pelosi says. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about immigration. You have a new immigration plan out, but some of the criticism when you were in the House was, you know, where was Beto? He wasn't a factor in immigration law, some of the fights there, even though you're from a border town, a border state. Yeah, what do you no, say to that? And what are you doing about that? Yeah, no, I was very engaged in, in this fight as a member of Congress. I authored a bill introduced it with a Republican, actually very conservative Republican at that, called the American Families United Act, which helps folks who have a lifetime bar on reentry for a technical violation of immigration law be able to go before an immigration judge and have that cleared so they can join their U.S. citizen families and contribute even more to our success. Wrote a bill, again, introduced it with Republicans, worked with the ACLU, but also worked with the National Border Patrol Council um, to ensure that there's real accountability for federal law enforcement on the border. So Border Patrol agents, CBP officers, ICE, um, anyone who's enforcing immigration law or in any way connects with border communities like mine, or as we increasingly see communities deeper into the interior. But those bills, like so many other immigration legislation, died by the wayside as we had a speaker for every 
one of the six years that I was there um, in a Republican-controlled institution, who would not allow these to come up for a vote? No matter the bipartisan consensus we were able to develop and form, it was the same fate that befell uh, the DREAM Act and other ideas that make a lot of common sense across party lines, but in the intransigence of that Republican majority were going nowhere. So um, you, you ask uh, you know, what we do going forward. Um, thankfully, this state and mine uh, both contributed to changing the majority in the House. We now have Speaker Pelosi uh, instead of Speaker Ryan or, or Boehner, and someone who I think understands the value of immigration reform, not just um, politically and not just economically, which is so often how we measure mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. but maybe taking the lead from a city like El Paso, one of the safest in the United States of America, not despite, but because we are the city of, of immigrants. The, the first steps many Americans ever took in this country were in Segundo Barrio or Chihuahuita in South El Paso. And it is part of how we've contributed to the greatness of this country. So our proposal says, look, if you're already here and you are a legal permanent resident, let's make you a citizen as fast as possible. Waive any fees, would waive the fees yeah. that you'd have to pay. We'll, we'll mail you an already filled out application form, and we'll get you fully contributing to this country's success. If you're one of the 11 million who are undocumented, we're going to help you get right with the law, with your government, pay any back fines or taxes, and then you too will become a resident and over time have the opportunity to become a U.S. citizen. And we create a new visa category. Um, this is something totally new that allows communities to sponsor refugees at no cost to the federal government. Uh, refugees, the, the most vetted population on the planet from mm -hmm. a security perspective, um, to, to come help enrich this country. And, and lastly, we, we cancel all the chaos at the border, the kids in cages, the walls, um, the Muslim bans. And instead, we treat people with humanity and respect. We follow our own asylum laws. And then we ensure that we are focused from a foreign policy perspective on the Northern Triangle countries of Central America and reduce violence at home, alleviate the, the consequences of drought and help people to stay where they are so they don't have to make that two Several billion dollars in that in your-, in your Absolutely, five billion dollars yeah, uh, to be precise yeah, yeah. over the next 10 years, yeah. How you you know the, the 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 composition of Congress is unlikely to change too much under a Beto O'Rourke presidency? How do you and you've been in these wars? How do you get Republicans to to buy into this? What is what's the sweetener for them? Yeah, I think we have to assume that the most ambitious aspects of any agenda. Um, whether it's immigration or climate or ensuring this economy works for everybody or universal guaranteed high quality healthcare is gonna be dependent on changing the composition of Congress and also of the state legislatures. Every level of political office is critically important for everything that we wanna be able to do. So I think the way that we're campaigning, going everywhere, not just to the early primary and caucus states, um, but, but to other states who don't have elections until much later in the calendar, uh, but whose citizens are every bit as important as anyone else in this country, making sure that we help to engage the way that we did in Texas, that took a state that was 50th in voter turnout to a state that today saw young voter turnout up 500%, uh, more votes for a Democrat uh, in the history of the state of Texas uh, we received in, in 2018. But we also brought independents 
and Republicans along with us as well. And that, that fundamentally changed the nature of our democracy and, and the ability to affect laws at a state level and also to influence national politics. Our 38 electoral college votes are unlocked for the first time in my adult life, maybe since 76. <laughs> so um, I think that same kind of campaign has to take place across this country. And then perhaps something we learned from the Obama administration it cannot end once the next president is sworn into office. Those state parties in so many instances withered on the vine. Those local precinct chairs and captains and community organizers were really left without the institutional support that is foundational to their ability to affect the outcomes of, of these elections. So so going to where people are and, and never really stopping the campaign, and not just for elected office, <clears throat> but for these values and these policies that we are campaigning on right now, that's the only way we're going to get this stuff done. Why? Uh, you, you, you're famously going around Iowa and the rest of the country in a minivan and such. Um, why do you get... What, what are you hearing? Why do people still support President Trump? What is it about him uh, that he's doing or that Democrats aren't doing? And what do you learn from that? It may have a lot to do with just where this country is and, and how we got here. The fact that increasingly money, corporations can buy access and influence and outcomes. And, and folks know, to repeat a word that is you know, maybe overused, but right on target, that this is rigged, um, that, that you don't have equal access to your representatives, that the policy that is passed does not reflect your lived experience or what is best for you. Instead, it's best for those donors or the bottom line of that corporation. And I think someone who promised to be a bomb thrower and to drain the swamp or just to blow the place up, there, there was a certain appeal or attraction to that. And when I traveled in Texas in those 254 counties over the last two years, I went to places, Archer County is a great example, where no Senate candidate from either party had shown up in decades. It was actually 70 years when LBJ as a member of Congress People showed up. They, they, they feel abandoned. And here's why. And, and you asked about Democrats. Democrats stopped showing up and so Republicans didn't have to. They, they had no natural enemy. So there was no reason to compete and hold town hall meetings and campaign and ask people about what was on their minds. And so folks were functionally and effectively not represented. And so we've, we've got to go everywhere, concede absolutely nothing, a, a full 50 state campaign. Um, and in, in states like Texas, a full 254 county campaign. It, it is the toughest way to do this. It is the only way to make possible what we need if we're going to save this country right now. But how do you do that in California? This is a state, even people who are veterans of, who, of statewide races, Kamala Harris has won three times here. This is a media state. This is like a, like a, a television ad state. That's right. seven to ten, seven to eight million dollars a week right. just to get the amount of impressions. You, you don't have enough tread on the minivan to, to do that here. How do you, where is your space in California and how are you going to do that? You know, I wonder if the, the dynamic in media and how we get information and how people become aware of a campaign or a candidacy has changed enough to, to challenge the, the, the premise of your question. Sure. Um, I think there was something to the way that we campaigned in Texas, just being in that van, going to those counties mm -hmm. that allowed us without a dime of PAC money to raise more money than any Senate candidate had in the history of the state of Texas and to compete in some of those media markets, but initially to attract people through social media, live streaming, the town halls we held, the conversations in the van ride from you know uh, Archer to, to Weatherford to, to Austin. Uh, and, and just being as open and transparent and responsive and accountable as possible. You know, our, our first 
visit to California. We were in San Francisco, had an amazing meeting at the Irish Cultural Center with about a yes. thousand people yes. talking about Journey and Metallica and the influences of the Bay Area that, <laughs> that shaped my life. But but also uh, going to Mariposa and, and also going to Stockton and also going to Modesto and also going to... Um, you know, Yosemite to talk about uh, climate change and these 2,000-year-old trees, the, the oldest living organisms that have survived every single threat until they faced something that is going to consume all of us unless we change now climate change. Um, I want to make sure that everyone knows that they're in this campaign if they want to join us and that we're not going to write anybody off or take anyone for granted. So I, I agree with you. It's going to be expensive. We do need the help in, in, in these small dollar donations that we've been receiving, but also showing up and being there is mm-hmm. um, irreplaceable. Speaking of climate change, you also have a, a major climate change proposal, which folks can find on your website. Um, you've, you've represented an, an, a, an energy-rich state uh, that's dependent on oil. What do you do, what do you say to the oil workers who would be displaced uh, if we move to a, a, a more uh, sustainable form of energy? Um, for years, Democrats have talked about oil retraining, but you, you've been on the road long enough. You say that to a, a, a worker, and they're like, "Screw you! I'm not going. I'm not going to be retrained for something. I can't. You know, I'm 55 years old. I, what am I going to do? What do you say to those folks?" Yeah. First thing I'd say is just thank you. Um, they're the reason that we've been able to achieve uh, a great deal of energy independence, um, and that's contributed to. Uh, a national security independence that can keep us from having to go to war in the Middle East, where we've been 28 years since George H.W. Bush um, used military force in Kuwait and Iraq in 1991. Um, We can stop threatening to invade Venezuela, uh, which has the largest proven reserves uh, of oil, as President Trump has has wanted to do. I mean, I drove here today in a Dodge Grand uh, caravan minivan, uh, and it burns gasoline, and I want that to come from from this country. But I also acknowledge that if we're going to meet our goals of becoming net zero greenhouse gas emissions certified by 2050, getting halfway there by 2030, we are going to have to very quickly transition off of fossil fuels. Um, so let's thank them for the work that they've done. Let's acknowledge that there will still be a period of transition where their work will still be needed. Let's make sure, as we will with coal miners, that we satisfy any concerns about their pensions uh, so that it's not something that they have to worry about. And then I do think that um, retraining, um, connecting with unions, uh, the apprenticeships that they can provide, um, the trades and skills that those workers can learn can help them to participate in one of the fastest growing parts of our economy today. In fact, the, the two fastest growing jobs are, are wind and solar jobs in, in America's economy. I think you, uh, California, take the lead in, in solar. We in Texas take the lead in wind. Mm-hmm. Um, this is knowledge and leadership that we can use to bring this country into uh, meeting its goals and then setting the example for the world so that we stop the planet from warming another two degrees Celsius, after which it, it's really hard to get this back and to ensure that the generations that follow us are, are going to be okay. But you, I think you're, you're absolutely spot on to say that this is not going to be politically easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not going to be without pain and, and sacrifice. 
Um, but I think there are things that we can do to make sure that those who've contributed to our success so far are, are rewarded for that, um, but that we quickly as possible transition into a full embrace of renewable energy. Speaking of transitions, uh, you know, if we were to transition to a Medicare for all system, which I believe you're in favor of, what uh, for the 80% of folks who get uh, their insurance uh, through work and such, what are they supposed to do? And what about all the healthcare workers who are in that industry? How does that transition look? Because I think sometimes it's, um, even Governor Newsom here, it's not as, you're not flipping a switch. No. Say tomorrow, by the way, tomorrow everyone has uh, their healthcare through the government. Right. There's a plan that I really like called Medicare for America that gets at your question. And, and this is what I'm supporting and what I would love to implement as president. If you are one of the tens of millions of our fellow Americans who have no insurance, you are enrolled in Medicare immediately. We, we do flip that switch for you. If you are one of the millions of our fellow Americans who are insufficiently insured, so you can't afford your copay, the deductible is unbridgeable, um, the premiums have just gone up too high for you to be able to, to meet all the, the demands of, of, of your household budget, you can elect to join Medicare and we will enroll you. But if you're one of the tens of millions of our fellow Americans who has employer-sponsored insurance, if you're one of those union members who bargained for high quality health insurance, perhaps at the expense of higher wages, and you like the plan because it works for you and your family, you're able to keep it under yeah. our proposal. I believe that is the surest, quickest way for us to get to universal, guaranteed, high-quality health care and to meet the needs of those Americans who today are not living to their full potential and sometimes uh, leaving, uh, leading diminished lives or sometimes uh, not living the lives that they should be able to. Um, and, and, I, and I think that that can build a, a constituency um, that will get us there faster than any other solution that I've, I've yet heard proposed. Any idea how long that transition would take? I mean, I, I think I think it could be uh, extraordinarily uh, quick um, because you're not having to uh, implement a wholesale change in how healthcare is insured, provided. Um, you're you're instead expanding a, a program that already works really well and retaining private insurance programs that serve the needs of those um, who, who find value and benefit in them. I, I think it is it is again just just the best path to take care of. All Americans. We have uh, uh, one more serious question, then we have a fun one. Which yeah. We, which, so uh, impeachment was is a dividing line today. We saw Tom Steyer this here at the uh, California Democratic Party convention, where you're in town for. Uh, Tom Steyer and others uh, want impeachment. Speaker Pelosi, you know, she's like, "Whoa, this is going to help President Trump in the end." Right. How do you? Where are you at on this? And where, how do you? This this seems like something that. Uh, would be a almost a pyrrhic victory for Democrats in some way. It could be a victory for Trump. Uh, he get he, you know if he doesn't he's not convicted in the Senate, right. then uh, which is unlikely to be, uh, then he gets to say, well, I wasn't impeached, uh, and could possibly gain public sympathy. Where are you at on this? I know this is a political thing, a constitutional thing. Yeah, you've been in the House. What? It's such an important decision that I think it demands that we take the longest view of its consequences possible. And so if you can look past the, the next election, if you can look past the composition or the majority in the House uh, of Representatives, 
and you can think about what our great grandkids will be saying about us. When there was a president who invited the involvement of a foreign power in our election in 2016, and then sought to obstruct justice as we investigated what had happened to the world's greatest democracy. Someone who has enriched himself and his family and his businesses at public expense, so going beyond just what we found in the Mueller report, but the Mueller report would be sufficient on its own. If we were to let that stand uh, for short-term political gain, we would run the risk of losing this democracy forever. We, we would have set the precedent that in fact some people, because of the power and the position of public trust that they hold, um, they are above the law in this country. We've seen the Democrats in the majority try their mightiest to compel witnesses to testify or furnish documents that we need to get to the truth, and they've been stonewalled by this administration. Impeachment is the single mechanism that will allow us to get the facts that we need to pursue justice and accountability as far as it goes and as high up as it reaches. Uh, I would argue that, that our very democracy and, and the future of this country depends upon it. And so it's time for us to take that step. And now, you know, you and I uh, share a, a love, and that is we both believe that the only band that matters is our favorite band, The Clash. Uh, song the clamp clampdown is a major part of your ca of campaign. It was in the Senate. Right. Explain to the to the unbelievers yeah. <laughs> why that is important and what's the significance of that to your campaign. And I know we could talk about the clash. Yeah. We could have a separate clash podcast at yeah. some point. I, I'm, I'm in. Yeah. I'll, I'll go 60 <laughs> minutes with you on that one. Um, it's funny. We, we were just at the convention and I finished my speech and I was talking to a young man. And he said, um, what's your favorite band, Nation of Ulysses or Rites of Spring? Um, both great Discord bands. And, you know, it's a false choice. They're, they're both great. But um, we were talking about music, and he said something that I remember saying at his age. He said, punk rock saved my life. And I remember in eighth grade uh, at El Paso High, um, Arlo Klar uh, loaning me London Calling. And it, it just absolutely changed my life. And the urgency in that music um, politics in a way I had never experienced it Absolutely. before. Yeah. Uh, and just, you know, Joe Strummer, the coolest human being that, that ever walked the, the planet. Preach, brother. Uh, and, um, and everything they did, you know, um, selling uh, Sandinista for the price of a single album, right. um, wearing their politics on their sleeve, um, you know, trying to be a voice for those who otherwise would not have a voice, but then making it popular, like bringing me in through the beat, um, the riffs, um, you know, Mick Jones soaring vocals. Um, I just, they just absolutely changed my life. And I think that there's got to be something in this corporate moment where it's it's not just what we watch on TV and what we buy, but it's it's our politics. It's how we consume right. public what about life. Clampdown. What is that? What is that? Why does that speak? Yeah. To, so to so talking about working for the clampdown, that that you can grow up idealistic um, with the best of intentions. but you can be compromised or, or corrupted or consumed by these larger forces and, and powers. And, and some of the, the lines in that song um, where you know, they're talking about being afraid of, of somebody based on, on, their, on their differences, um, you know, taking off his turban, so they is, said, is, is this man a Jew? Jew? 
Um, yeah, it's just chilling for me to even say that. Yeah. But we say that during an administration that has sought to ban all Muslims from traveling to the United States uh, of America, or is called Mexican immigrants, rapists and criminals, or asylum seekers, animals, or an infestation. I mean, the clampdown is upon us. And, um, and, and sometimes we are tempted to laugh it off. Who, who is this clown in the White House saying this ridiculous stuff? I mean, this, this is how it starts. And, and I feel like that song is so prescient. Um, it wasn't just reminding us of bad things that had happened before. It was, it was a warning about the things to come. And we, we were at that moment. And so I, I think that song, for me, really resonates at, at, this, at this moment. And um, I think it's worth everyone listening to who's tuning into your podcast. <laughs> as soon as you leave the building, I'm going to crank it. Let's do it. <laughs> but O'Rourke, thank you for being on, on thank It's you. All Political. Appreciate it. Grateful. I'd like to thank you all for listening today. I'd like to thank Beto O'Rourke for coming into San Francisco to the Chronicle to record the podcast. I'd like to thank Libby Coleman for producing this podcast. And remember, whether you're working for the clampdown or just all lost in the supermarket, it's all political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle podcast network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks. Thanks.